Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It's not entirely clear that this cost of living crisis is going to melt away as the year ends and we go into 2024. Israel is the only country in the world that has to defend itself from defending itself. There is not so much a black swan, but a kind of looming flock of birds filling the sky, sort of Hitchcock style of issues. That's something for Rishi Sunak to put in his cup of green tea or chai, isn't it? One. We have Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Truly shocking events in the Middle East, co-pilot. As the armed conflict between Israel and Palestinian militants, Hamas grinds horrifically on. It was on Saturday the 7th of October, less than a fortnight ago, that Hamas launched a coordinated surprise attack on Israel, launching some 3,000 rockets from the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip, killing at least 1,400 Israelis, the worst single day of slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. Unarmed civilian hostages and captured Israeli soldiers are now imprisoned in Gaza, including women and children. Israel declared war on Hamas the next day, and since then, we've seen retaliatory airstrikes aimed at Gaza. So far, much of the Western world, particularly the US and UK, has staunchly backed Israel. But in places like Russia, China, and much of Africa, there's sympathy for the Palestinian cause. While Israel receives weapons and support from America, Hamas is backed by Iran, with Israel's perennial enemy also funding the radical Hezbollah militia based in Lebanon directly to Israel's north. As the world looks on in horror, there are concerns this conflict could spread across the region. And Iran's making ominous noises, saying Israel is out of time, while threatening to close the Straits of Hormuz, the maritime gateway into and out of the Persian Gulf, the oil pinch point of the world. That would cause the kind of economic havoc that followed the Arab-Israeli Yom Kippur War in 1973, a conflict which saw oil prices triple. We're a long way from that, Alison, but the signs aren't good. The UK, meanwhile, still has an inflation problem. The consumer price index in September was 6.7% higher than the same month in 2022, the same as the figure in August, and only slightly down from 6.8% the month before. So rather than falling, inflation is flatlining, which means the Bank of England could well implement another interest rate rise. Will rates go up again when the bank's monetary policy committee meets on November the 2nd? Opinions are split. The reality is that energy prices and inflation could certainly spike again if the geopolitical situation in the Middle East or between Russia and Ukraine takes a turn for the worse. It's a pretty grim news outlook, co-pilot. How are you bearing up? (laughs) 
I love the idea we're going to have more economic havoc coming courtesy of the Straits of Hormuz. Oh, marvellous, isn't you it? You didn't even know where they were. And that's Hormuz. <laughs> it's not It's not Hormuz. I thought it was Hormuz. We're now going to get a thousand emails to Planet Normal on how to pronounce Hormuz. Hormuz. And Satsiki. I don't want to know where they are. All I know is that the gas bills are going to go up, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's been a bleak old week, hasn't it? Before we crack into death and disaster, well, actually, this is on the theme of death, really, but in a more uplifting way, you went to the memorial service for Nigel Lawson, didn't you? Someone who actually did have control of the economy, unlike the present lot. How was it? I did indeed. So the memorial service, it was a rather select gathering. Very few journalists were there. And I was probably the youngest of those who were there. Indeed, uh, I was described in the Telegraph's report of the memorial service by the excellent Daniel Johnson, a very distinguished Fleet Street writer, as a teenage scribbler. I'll take that, the wrong side (laughs) of 50. So Nigel Lawson, of course, died in April. The memorial service was held in St. Margaret's Church. That's the beautiful white church in the shadow of Westminster Abbey. Mm. So it's very much within Westminster, close to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Rishi Sunak gave a speech. Norman Lamont, former Chancellor, gave a speech. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, gave a speech. Loads of dignitaries there from the worlds of economics and policymaking. George Osborne, Mervyn King, the former Bank of England governor, was there. And it was a privilege to be among them and just to talk about Nigel Lawson, of course, the great conservative tax cutter. He slashed the top rate of income tax in the 80s from 60 to 40%, sparking that incredible sun front page. Nice one, Nigel. He took corporation tax from 52% where it was in 1983, 52%. So over half your profits go straight to the state. In 1983, down to 35% by 1989 when he bowed out. He resigned, of course, adding real pressure to Margaret Thatcher to leave. The combination of the Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson resignations really did for the Iron Lady. But it was a pleasure to be there. And it's interesting to me because in the fringes of the service, the memorial service, then afterwards at the drinks reception in Dean's Yard, just around the corner at Westminster School, where Nigel Lawson was a pupil, of course, There was a lot of talk. God, I wish old Nigel was around now because we don't half need some of his policies. Well, one of the things that shone out for me from the coverage, apart from you being bigged up as a teenage scribbler. (laughs) Don't get jealous. Was that he was a brilliant mind, wasn't he? And I think that his son, Dominic, said that he was not afraid to take up intellectual positions, to go against the flow. You know, I've been very interested in Nigel Lawson having been a sort of net zero sceptic. I mean, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which I joined the trustees of recently, partly really in honour of Nigel Lawson, who had set it up. And I wondered how many of the the great and the good in that congregation alongside you, how many of them – possess the courage, the sort of intellectual confidence, really, to be able to say, you know, are we on the right path here with this net zero and so on? So I think we mourn his kind, Liam, don't we? We mourn that ability to not go with the herd. We are absolutely bedeviled, I think, by groupthink from COVID to net zero now. And I just think we really could do with the Nigel Lawson type, if there is a type. So the key to understanding Nigel Lawson, in my view, is distinguishing between arrogance on the one hand and intellectual courage of convictions on the other. And 
I knew him reasonably well. As you know, I conducted the last interview with him. Yes, you did. I conversed with him and corresponded with him over many, many years. And the fact that he took a lot of interest in my journalism was one of the honors of my professional life. And I don't say that lightly. And I would say it was definitely the latter. He wasn't arrogant because he had a lot of time for other people's points of view. And that to me is the opposite of arrogance. But he did have the courage of his intellectual convictions and he didn't mind where his convictions took him if that's where research and logic took him. And a lot's been written about him and Net Zero. And it strikes me that what he was really interested in wasn't so much in stopping us moving away from fossil fuels. He knew commodity markets well. He knows fossil fuels are finite. He knows they cause pollution. He wanted to move away from fossil fuels in a logical, reasonable, and not economically ruinous way. Mm. And I do think that as the time goes by, as the years and decades go by, some of his writings dismissed as uh, beyond the pale by many of the bien pensants who were in his memorial <laughs> service, by the way, newspaper editors and so on. There were a lot of journalists there, by the way, from his generation, because, of course, he was a, an FT man. His son, Dominic, yeah. was a very distinguished editor of the Sunday Telegraph, of course. But I do think he stood out from the crowd because he was prepared to take a view, even if it was unfashionable, even if it drew fire upon him, and even if it made people he was close to uncomfortable. And for me, that is the sign of somebody who is a real intellectual leader. And that's what he was. And if you look at Daniel Johnson's excellent piece in The Telegraph, and we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode, the comments are just unbelievable. So many readers saying, why are all today's politicians intellectual pygmies? Where are people of the intellect and caliber of Nigel Lawson? Mm. I think that's a little bit unfair. I do think there are some smart people in politics today, but it certainly seems to me maybe this is just looking back with rose-tinted spectacles, co-pilot, but it does seem to me that there were far fewer than there were in the 80s and into the 90s. Well, of course, the Lawsons have sort of Jewish origins, don't they? And I think it would be very interesting to have had their take on the state of British Jewry at the moment. These are very, very difficult times, Liam. Obviously, we've got this war, Israel-Hamas war. I think it's wrong to say Israel-Palestine war. It's Israel-Hamas really is a in response to the absolutely horrific, almost surreal events of the 7th of October. We had a lovely man called Yossi, the head of the body recovery unit who gave an extraordinary press conference on Tuesday talking about going into some of these kibbutzes to fetch the bodies and seeing sites that really no one should ever see. So we have got these powerful echoes of the Holocaust and we've seen on the streets of London a huge pro-Palestinian march, about 50,000 people. You can come back on me about this. I, I didn't think it was well policed. I thought that there was immense provocation, attacks on the police. I was remembering, Liam, the vigil for Sarah Everard after she was murdered and the Metropolitan Police didn't have any problems dragging young women away from a bandstand. So when they want to enforce the law, they can. I think there was some very serious question marks raised about whether there was open anti-Semitism. You had some people on that march wearing images of the paragliders, which Hamas terrorists had arrived at the festival in the desert where they managed to kill at least 260 people, most of them 
in their 20s. So there's a lot going on. My column this week, I got very upset seeing the cenotaph that permission had been given for free Palestine activists to set up a stage and a kind of gazebo next to the cenotaph, the solemn and sacred place where we honour our war dead. And there were large banners, end the violence, no to apartheid, stop the occupation. And I wondered, co-pilot, what would all those men and women commemorated at the cenotaph who gave their lives for our country have made of Westminster City Council and Mayor Sadiq Khan giving their permission for the cenotaph to be appropriated in this partisan and tactless manner. So feelings are running extremely high. We're recording now on Wednesday. Yesterday night, a hospital was bombed in Gaza and Hamas claiming that 500 people had died. Absolutely horrific scenes. And nearly all of the broadcast media leapt into action, blaming Israel, absolutely swallowing the uh, Hamas propaganda. I don't know how they come up with 500 dead when the ruins were still smoldering. But anyway, yes, we saw the BBC and others who really do like to bash Israel swinging into action, completely swallowing the propaganda, saying that Israel had sent a huge rocket into this particular hospital. And now this morning, we've had a lot of rowing back on that, including Joe Biden, who is in Israel on a very, very important diplomatic visit, clearly made even more difficult by this strike on the hospital. But the president did say that it looks like the strike had been carried out by the other team. Well, obviously, it's an extremely complex situation and even ascertaining whether Israel bombed the hospital or Hamas bombed its own people in a false flag operation is an absolute minefield, isn't it? It's interesting the way a lot of people did leap to the conclusion that it was Israel, even though there was no crater, which suggested a rather less sophisticated weapon that Hamas may have confected themselves. I don't know. I'm not there. What I do know is that as well as the horrific echoes of the Holocaust, what a terrible parallel that is to make. We also need to mark that the attack was within one day of the 50th anniversary of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Mm. And the Yom Kippur War, of course, was a really pivotal moment because it was the Arab world or much of the Arab world, including Egypt, against Israel. And the Arab world responded to much Western backing for Israel, particularly American Western backing for Israel, by imposing probably the most effective oil embargo the world has ever seen, taking so much Arab oil off global markets. The oil price tripled, Alison. That's when you know the Americans moved away from you know Starsky and Hutch style big gas guzzlers to Japanese compacts by necessity. Yeah. And I'm not saying we're in that situation yet. The the commodity markets seem to be in a kind of eerie calm. Oil spiraled from about seventy dollars a barrel to just over ninety dollars a barrel since June. That's because the OPEC energy cartel, the 13-nation exporters group that has been imposing restrictions, limiting the amount of oil that gets onto global markets. So even though the global economy has been slowing as interest rates have been rising, oil prices have been rising too. And that hurts oil importers like the UK and much of Western Europe. America, by the way, is a lot less vulnerable than it was in 1973 because America has been fracking. It's been massively expanding its energy complex. America is now a net energy exporter. Unbelievably, it's the largest exporter of liquefied 
natural gas and one of the very top, top oil producers as well. So America is more insulated mm. from anything that the Arab world may do to try and pressure the Western world into relenting from its support from Israel. But I mentioned at the top, and I don't wish to sound alarmist, but we have heard from Tehran in recent days, phrases like, we're going to fight this war on other fronts, Mm. phrases like Israel's time is up. And Iran really is the sort of perennial enemy of Israel. And security services people I know, certainly oil traders I know, are concerned that you could have some kind of blockage at that maritime gateway into and out of the Persian Gulf. And if that happens, I mean, all bets about the cost of living crisis in the Western world are off. We would have a major, major energy price spike this autumn. And that's before you even consider Russia, Ukraine. Russia, Ukraine has not gone away just because of these atrocities in the Middle East. Russia, Ukraine is still a major global fracture that could easily escalate. The implications of Russia-Ukraine on food prices, for instance, to massive grain and stable product exporters like Russia and Ukraine, for oil prices, for gas prices. You know, there's concern about sabotage on gas pipelines across the North Sea. So we've seen gas prices escalate almost unnoticed in the last week or so. So look, the inflation number when it came out was a bit disappointing. It was 6.7% in September, the same as in August, down just a bit from 6.8% in July. We're still quite away from Rishi Sunak's 5% or so target. We're a long way away from the Bank of England's 2% target. But the cost of living crisis is still with us. It's going to take time to pass through. But there is not so much a black swan, but a kind of you know looming flock of birds filling the sky, sort of Hitchcock style of issues. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but with bond markets very fragile, with concerns about oil and gas prices rising, it's not entirely clear that this cost of living crisis is going to melt away as the year ends and we go into 2024. That has been for a long time the assumption of much of our political media class that that would happen and Sunak would meet his inflation target of 5% and the Tories would get a lift because the economy was getting better next year. You know what, Alison? It may not happen. Well, we're not able to go into details about this, but today, when Planet Normal listeners are hearing us, there are two rather critical by-elections, aren't there? We're allowed to say that they're in mid-Bedfordshire and in Tamworth, both conservative seats. Now, election law forbids us from speculating on different things, but we could potentially be looking at tricky times for the government. And here's a Velma stat for you. Woo! Were mid-Bedfordshire to fall to any of the other parties, it would be the largest numerical majority to be overturned in British electoral history. So that's something for Rishi Sunak to put in his cup of green tea or chai, isn't it? That would certainly be a gift to the headline writers, didn't it, if it happened? But on the other hand, you're right, the the RPA, as we say in journalism, the Representation of the People's Act means because polls are open, because voting booths are open as we release Planet Normal, Mm. we as commentators are not allowed to speculate or try and guide voters in any way, and rightly so. This is the kind of 
iron law of journalism. Not that they'd be paying any attention to you <laughs> or me. God help us if they're taking advice from us. It may be that they win them both. It may be that they lose them both. It seems to me on polling that they're both pretty much on a knife edge. They could go either way. So let's see what happens. But certainly in such a febrile atmosphere, when lots of questions are being asked about Rishi Sunak, when straight after his conference, he didn't get a bounce. Keir Starmer was seen to have a much better conference, I think, than Rishi Sunak. Mm. I mean, I say that objectively, having been at both the main party conferences, it will be interesting to see the response to these by-election results, win or lose for the Conservatives. Hi, I'm Phil Spencer, and I'm here with Telegraph Money, your new complete guide to being better off. From saving and investing to pensions and, of course, property, Telegraph Money puts a wealth of expert opinion plus useful tools and calculators right at your fingertips. Explore more from me and our personal finance experts now. Search Telegraph Money today. So, Liam, this week we've got a rather unusual guest, someone I interviewed against time this morning. You'll understand that when you hear it, but I think it's rather special in a way. Our guest on Planet Normal this week is Ben. Can't give his full name for reasons that will become clear. Ben is a reservist, a staff sergeant in the Israeli Defence Forces. And I wanted to just get the view of an ordinary soldier about what's going on. We're hearing about these great geopolitical machinations. But what's it been like to be a young man on the ground trying to defend your country? And Ben was part of a squad that had gone into one of the worst attacked kibbutzes to provide security for the survivors and to clear up those who had been tragically murdered. So I started by asking Ben, what was the morale like out there? And what did he think was going to happen over the next few days? Ben has witnessed some pretty harrowing things. So just a warning that you may find some of what follows a bit disturbing. The morale here on the kibbutz where we are with all of the, the soldiers, everyone here is, is focused. Nobody's letting their guard down. Everybody is, is determined uh, on our goal. And, you know, our goal is right now to bring security back to the communities of southern Israel and the Gaza border to make sure that the, the threat of Hamas no longer exists in the, the sense of not being able to commit these types of terror attacks ever again uh, towards Israelis in whatever shape or form that means. And you were deployed to Kafar Azar, and that's probably the hardest hit kibbutz in terms of atrocities. I know it's very upsetting, but can you tell us what happened? I'm in a reserve unit, so all of my guys, we were called up on Saturday immediately once the, the attacks began to take place. And I spoke to a bunch of my guys, and none of us even uh, waited for the call. We just got in our car and immediately reported to duty. Uh, but when we first reported to, to Kfaraza and we were sent there, you know, we, we were uh, witnessing the body bags being loaded onto the, to the trucks and being taken away. And shortly after, we started walking around the kibbutz to the just... Uh, Brutal scenes of, of butcher and massacre, complete families slaughtered in their homes, babies slaughtered in their beds, toddlers being slaughtered and shot while they were holding their teddy bears. 
we know we can very clearly make out the scenes of what happened by what's left. Uh, we didn't even have to see the dead bodies there to know exactly what took place. No, these acts that took place don't define any sort of positive future for anybody. It was a, a complete butcher and the barbarism that, that took place must be condemned. You know, I, I think the world did a great job of condemning it in the first 48 to 72 hours of what happened. Uh, and now we're starting to see more more defense of of uh, Hamas and in that they rep that they do represent the Palestinian people, which I think is a complete and utter shame. You said it was, I was very moved to hear that as the body bags were being loaded into the truck, you were you were saying prayers. The soldiers were saying prayers. Yeah, we for each and every body bag, and there were over sixty of them. For each and every body bag, we all stood and we said the mourners' prayer. And as soon as all the last body bag was loaded, we we broke out into Hatikva. Nobody said to you know start singing. Uh, we just started singing the Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, which translates to the hope. And it, it really did. You know, I had tears in my eyes. I was not alone. Yossi Landau, fantastic man you may know, who is the commander of Zaka. They're the body retrieval team. He gave a very moving press conference yesterday saying he had witnessed such unspeakable things. He mentioned a pile of children with their hands tied behind their backs who had been burnt. Ben, who, who are these people who do this? Can, can you, you're a soldier. You must have seen some difficult things. What sort of person could do that? What, what sort of hatred is motivating them? Most of these Hamas terrorists as well, you know, they have families, they have wives, they have kids back in back in Gaza. And I just, how could somebody, exactly you just said, you know, take eight children, tie their hands together and burn them alive, whole families alive, elderly, and then go back to their families and attempt any sort of life? I simply cannot picture or put myself in a situation where I understand the mentality behind it. The only thing I can give an answer to for that is just it's pure hatred, pure hatred of life and the love of life. They, they hate it. They really, really hate it. They pride around and, and promote the fact of uh, being a martyr and dying for their cause. When we go and, and we do eliminate their threat and we take out these, these terrorists, they are happy to die for their cause. They're happy to die knowing that they died killing Jews and killing Israelis. Apparently the, the terrorists had a sort of handbook telling them what to do with Israeli civilians. Is that right? Yes, they had a, they had a handbook. They were very well organized. They were very well prepared. They'd been planning this for over a year as many of the documents were, were dated from September and October 2022. Uh, and the, the instructions for them were, were very laid out and organized and clear to avoid IDF outposts, to reach the civilian communities, how many people were located in each home, down to the level of how many pets were located and what they were going to be encountering in each location. They did the weakest points of the kibbutzim and communities for in which that they could break into the communities. It was so well organized. You know, the commanders had these these large, uh, detailed booklets, but every single soldier had on them at least, you know, one page. And on the top of that one page of orders, 
was the most simplest of orders, which was to hunt and kill everything that moves. And that was, you know, the, everything that they're looking at, and they're always being reminded of you know, hunt and kill everything that moves. I think that just goes to show in some of the true barbarism that took place. I believe you went into a house on on the kibbutz that had had belonged to the to the Solomon family. What what was there? And the, and, the, and there was a dog. Was there in the, in the children's bedroom? Yeah, Solomon family. Thank God, you know, we found out that uh, the, the entire family is alive. However, when we did walk in, the, the scene that we saw was, uh, you know, there were bullet holes in the front door. And it, walking in, I was looking for a place to sleep. And I lo- walked into the bomb shelter there of their home. And the dog was there at the foot of the bed on the floor, you know, in his, uh, in his dog bed in his place. And next to the bed on the nightstand was a 12-inch knife. And my heart sank when I saw that. I could immediately picture the scene there of the family, the last line of defense. You know, if these Hamas terrorists were to break break down the door of the bomb shelter and to get in, that that would be their last last line of hope. Looking on the other side, we know that there are, even despite attempts to move Palestinians into a safer area, do you have concerns? I mean, it's a very densely packed, small area. Do you have concerns about potentially killing Palestinian children, just as you've seen Israeli children slaughtered? Well, of course. And I think that that's something that nobody here ever, ever wants to do. We want to make sure that the civilians are as distant as possible from the area of, of urban warfare. The IDF takes every possible chance and opportunity that they can get in order to, to properly distance these people and the innocent civilians from these areas, whether it be by making phone calls personally, individually to every single family. Can I just pick you up on that? They make phone calls today to individual families. Yes, of course. And I mean, the recordings are out there. The recordings are published and put out there for people to see around the world. And people just, you know, turn a blind eye to it and uh, deny the fact that Israel is is making every single step and, and every effort to, to really get these people as far away from the war sites as possible. The Israelis who are serving in the military, nobody here wants to take any innocent life. We want to eliminate the threat of Hamas. We, would, we want to see the Palestinian people rise up and kick Hamas out from, the, from within because, and find leadership that truly does represent their well-being and their positive futures. We, we don't want to see a, a, another situation where Hamas is leading the, the, organ, leading the Gaza Strip, uh, both militarily and politically, because we see what happens. We see that you know, the UN and, and foreign countries are giving lots of humanitarian aid to Hamas and to the Gaza Strip, and Hamas takes it all for terror, terror targets. They don't do anything to help the Palestinian people, and it, it's, it's a true, true shame. So nobody wants to see any, any innocent civilian killed. And I think we needed to focus on the fact that Hamas doesn't allow them to leave, takes their keys, takes their IDs, and forces them to stay in the areas. Ben, you're still only 26. You're the same age as, as my daughter. One of the things that really affected me was all the people your age and my daughter's age who were massacred, basically hunted down at the Supernova Festival in, in the desert. What was your reaction hearing that so many young Israelis almost exactly like you, 
had been murdered. And did any of your guys or friends lose anyone in the attack? I personally knew people who were at the party. I know people who survived and were able to escape. And I also know people, a couple of people who unfortunately were murdered there in that day. I have good friends who've lost their family members, their, their siblings who were there at the attack. It, it affected everybody. There's not a single person here in Israel who is not connected to somebody who lost somebody, whether on the first stage or a family member of somebody that they know. And it, it's personal for everybody. And it's something that can resonate with people all over the world. You know, so many young people party and go to raves and love to experience these, these type of times. And what it turned into it breaks your heart to hear the stories. You have, as you say, had support from around the world, but there are lots of critics of Israel. We've seen that here in the UK with big marches, pro-Palestine marches on the street. Do you understand, Ben, that people see this immensely powerful, highly armed country, you know, next to potentially going to evade this poor, densely packed uh, piece of land? Do you think Israel would be responding proportionately if it went in? And, and what would be proportionate for those massacres that we've been talking about? We bring up a good point, you know, proportion. What, what, what does proportion mean in this situation? I, I think if we actually look at the definition of proportion, then the Israeli army would be marching into Gaza and bundling up entire families and burning their homes, would be raping the Palestinians and raping Gazans left and right and before murdering them in front of their families. I think that when we talk about proportion, that would be proportion. And we have absolutely zero interest uh, of doing any of that. Our goal is to remove the and distance the innocent civilians and innocent Gazans from the these very populated areas in the north of Gaza Strip and to target specifically Hamas terror targets and their military facilities and infrastructure in order to make sure that they can't do this again. And they also, we have the Palestinian people in mind when we're taking care of and planning and executing every single act that we do take out. It's very difficult, you know, you get to, people all around the world have talked about it. What is the proportional response? I think it's a, a terrible question to, to be posed with when after the, the brutal massacre of the, these innocent civilians, we target Hamas and we are not at war with Gaza, we are at war with Hamas specifically. Does it annoy you, I mean, things like the hospital where the international media incredibly eager to seize on proof, you know, that Israel is worse than Hamas? Does that annoy you This in the, in the battle of propaganda that Israel is depicted as the bad guy when, you know, we've seen Israel suffering this unassuageable sorrow, really? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, Israel is the only country in the world that has to defend itself from defending itself. And I think that that is, is a very powerful, powerful sentiment to hear that, you know, any other country that would be attacked this way and, and faced with a terror attack like this w would not be questioned twice in their response. But because we are Israel, because we are the Jewish state, and because we are surrounded by the countries that we are surrounded by and the location that we are, 
we come under such a huge spotlight and magnifying glass of every little tiny thing that we do. For that reason, we take the steps that we take, like the, I mentioned before, you know, dropping leaflets, trying to get these people out of their homes and into safe areas. You know, it's our goal also that, you know, they'll, they'll be able to cross the Rafa crossing and find security and safety in Egypt. That's definitely also a goal that we hope, you know, that they can do that. And then we have an opportunity to truly uproot Hamas in, in all aspects and areas of the Gaza Strip. Now, in terms of what it means for after, I, I think that's a very difficult question. And both the Palestinian people and the, the entire Arab world must come together and, and help to find these peaceful solutions for new leaders in the Palestinian community. If you do have to go in, we know Hamas has this network of tunnels, presumably booby-trapped. Do you ever feel scared, Ben? I think everyone feels scared just a little bit that we, we don't want to go in. Uh, and just from, from the beginning of the conversation at that, you know, that no Israelis wants to go in. I know that if we are tasked with the orders of going in, I know that some of my comrades will not come home. And I think that's it's something to think about, that we don't want to be doing this. But we know that if we must, because it means that our children won't have to deal with this again, then we'll do it. And everybody that I speak to, it's a very wide belief around Israel that we will jump to the cause now if it means that our children won't have to. But yeah, I think that definitely everybody feels a little bit of fear, not wanting to do this, but knowing that not everybody's going to come home. Looking to the future, I hope there will be a bright future. What would you like to see Israel focusing on? I think that Israel needs to continue doing what we've always done uh, in terms of our negotiations and peace attempts with our Arab neighbors, that we, we've always been willing to sit at the table. And if it means that we have to make concessions to live in peace, we've always done it. In 2005, we unilaterally removed all Israelis and Jews from the Gaza Strip and gave it back to the Palestinian Authority, who a year and a half later, lost the elections to Hamas. Mm. And since then, Hamas has been ruling the Gaza Strip in their four-year... They won an election for four years, and they've been ruling ever since, and there have not been elections since. We see exactly what happens. All of the aid, the foreign aid that comes into the Gaza Strip goes straight to tunnels and terror infrastructure and rocket factories. The fact that Israel supplies water and electricity and gas to the Gaza Strip to this day, I think is a great representation of how all of the money that has gone into the Gaza Strip has gone to terror and has not gone to building up an infrastructure for the Palestinian and the Gazan people. Would you be hopeful for two-state resolution? I personally would, but I think that, again, I, I would not want a two-state solution if Hamas is the leadership of the Palestinian people. I think that we need to work and the entire Western world needs to band together along with the Arab world to condemn Hamas and its other terrorist organizations, both in the Palestinian Authority and in Gaza and the West Bank, and to denounce them, work hard to find leaders that do represent the Palestinian people and a bright future for the Palestinian people. Because of the fact of the matter is that it's 2023, these Israelis are here, the Palestinian people are here, both have 
ties to this land. Nobody's going anywhere. And as soon as we all recognize that and put our efforts towards finding the leaders on all sides, both sides, that work towards peace, that want to live here in peace, that's when we'll be able to achieve peace. And right now what we're seeing is, you know, Israel, we're ready to sit down at the table 24-7, 365 days of the year if it means that we, our citizens and our families and our children will live in peace. And we haven't had that response from, from the Palestinian leadership. So as soon as that starts to happen, and the world needs to promote that, as soon as that starts to happen, that's when we can start to see peace and work towards a two-state solution. Ben, thank you for giving us such an incredibly thoughtful take. I know it must have really emotionally taken its toll, the events of the last days. We wish you in the coming days that you have whatever it takes. You sound such an impressive person to me. And Ben, may your goal go with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison. I appreciate you having me on and uh, giving me this opportunity. Thank you. An incredibly moving and important interview, Alison, from Ben, not his real name, of course, somebody who clearly combines a lot of authority from on-the-ground experience with a, a real thoughtfulness as well. It was interesting to hear him articulate, despite all the horrors that he's seen, his backing for a two-state solution. How did you feel when you were talking to him? I felt emotional, but I felt I hadn't earned the emotion and he had, and he was being so mature. I mean, God, Liam, he's only 26 and he just speaks so well, doesn't he? So I felt he's seen the horrors and I haven't. So I felt I didn't want to. I just wanted to keep very calm and allow him to speak. I mean, some of the things he said really struck home. Israel, the only country in the world that has to defend itself from defending itself. And there is something in that, I think. And I think one of the reasons I was upset by some of the protests on the streets here is I'm not sure, but particularly some of our younger people fully understand the enemy that Ben and his guys are up against. I don't know if you saw it, Liam, there was a really interesting poll where British people were asked, which side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict do you sympathize with? And all Brits were Israel, 21%, Palestine, 17%. And the don't knows were 33%, which I think is an accurate reflection of the fact that it's very hard for people to know what's going on. But Labour voters did still, despite Sakir Starmer, overwhelmingly support Palestine, 27% with Israel at merely 7%. But Conservatives very strongly sticking up for Israel, 39%, and Palestine, just 6%. But what stood out, co-pilot, for me was the age split. Among 18 to 24-year-olds, Israel commanded just 11% support against 39%, a resounding 39% for Palestine. And I suppose the thing that concerns me, and I'm not going to say that there aren't cases to be made on both sides, but in that march down Regent Street, we actually saw these kids, I mean, in their teens and 20s, white British kids carrying these banners, queers against Israeli apartheid, waving a pride flag. And I actually thought, 
Where do you begin with such lethal ignorance? If we could teleport those British kids to Gaza and introduce them to the misogynistic, homophobic, racist, hostage-taking, Palestinian-abusing, baby-killing Hamas in Palestine and Gaza, same-sex activity between men is criminalized. You can get 10 years in jail just for being gay. But of course, Hamas seldom bothers with such legal niceties. Last year, a gay Palestinian man was found beheaded in the West Bank. So I suppose what I'm saying, Liam, is I find a major disconnect between this fashionable liberal cause of Gaza, of Palestine, and the actual brutal reality of what these genocidal terrorists who are proxies for Iran of what they're all about. Do you know what I'm saying? I do hear what you're saying, Alison, very much. And I just wanted to provide some context of how complicated this situation is. Take what's happening in London, the borough of Brent, where I grew up. I grew up in the shadow pretty much of Wembley Stadium. And of course, The Football Association has refused to light up the arch of Wembley Stadium in Israeli colours, having lit up the arch for all kinds of causes in recent years. The Muslim population of Brent, where Wembley is, is 21%. The Muslim population of London is 15%. And I do think the authorities and the security services are genuinely concerned about sectarian violence, if you like, here in the UK as a result of this explosion between Israel and Hamas. That's a really tough dilemma for them to get their arms around. And we mentioned Nigel Lawson at the beginning. You were kind enough to say that I was at his memorial service. And this is quite a controversial thing I'm going to do now. But I'm a journalist and I'm interested in debate and looking at things from all sides. Another politician I knew well when I was a young political correspondent was Gerald Kaufman. Mm. who, of course, was the very erudite, extremely avuncular MP for Gorton in Manchester. I got to know Gerald well, and he was, of course, the son of Jewish, Polish emigrants who came to the UK before the First World War. He was known for being really articulate, and in his youth, he was mesmerised by the Zionist cause, a cause of Israel. But then throughout his parliamentary career, he gave a series of really astonishing speeches about Israel. And I think the most famous one was in 2009. And I'm just going to quote it here. These are the words of an observant Jew, somebody who called Golda Meir his friend, uh, obviously (laughs) a particularly well-known former prime minister of Israel. And he said some astonishing things. And I'm going to just quote some of them in order to demonstrate the complexity of this situation of a Jewish distinguished former minister saying this in the House of Commons. The present Israeli government, said Gerald Kaufman in 2009, ruthlessly and cynically exploits the continuing guilt from Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, over the slaughter of Jews in the Holocaust as justification for their murder of Palestinians. Ouch. About the death of his own grandmother in the Holocaust, Gerald Kaufman said, my grandmother did not die to provide cover for Israeli soldiers murdering Palestinian grandmothers in Gaza. Absolutely astonishing. After the Israeli army spokeswoman replied to the death of 800 Palestinians, that 500 of them were militants, Gerald Kaufman said that her reply 
was that, quotes of a Nazi. And he remarked that members of the Jewish resistance during the Holocaust could also have been dismissed as militants and that the creation of the state of Israel itself had followed acts of terrorism by armed Jews. Gerald Kaufman urged the British government back then to implement a total ban on arms sales to Israel. And I say all that, I report all that. Report is the operative word. Not because I agree with it or because I don't agree with it, but because it demonstrates so succinctly the complexity of this situation, even for observant Jews like Gerald Kaufman. My best friend in the States is Jewish and I'm very close to her kids. And when I see those young Israelis butchered in the desert, I think of Samantha and Jacob and Joshi, and it could be them and my best friends in London. Also Jewish, my friend said this week that they were feeling broken and traumatized. So as you say, there's a lot of pain, difficulty on each side. But my view is very much that as long as the people Ben described, as long as the haters are living next to Israel, there will be no peaceful solution. So this week, our listener emails, not surprisingly, we've had an enormous number representing all sides of the argument, actually, about Israel and Palestine. This is from Michael. Dear Alison and Liam, how can it have come to this? Have the majority of UK residents really forgotten what happened to the Jewish people less than a century ago? How can our values have changed from being prepared as a nation to lead the war against their persecution to allowing a naive and misguided mob to join with supporters of 21st century genocide to demonstrate at the Cenotaph, our most sacred of memorials in Whitehall? Alison is right to praise the PM and members of the opposition for their condemnation of the slaughter by Hamas, but words are not enough. Can you imagine in the name of free speech and upholding the right to protest that Churchill and his war cabinet would have allowed demonstrations in support of the Third Reich whilst the extermination of the Jews was taking place? We are already at war in the UK. It's a war of ideology between extreme and brutal views of rogue states and a sizable cohort of their followers now living in our country. And our traditional British values of fairness, sanctity of life and democracy. We value freedom of speech, but there have to be limits when it is confused with undemocratic extremism. Despite firm words, our politicians and police are not acting to uphold what we should be standing for. There is a proposal for a Holocaust memorial to be built in one of our most loved parks next to Parliament. This is a virtue signalling project already tainted by allegations of misogyny and sexual impropriety. A true memorial would be the complete intolerance of all anti-Semitism and in particular anything to do with Hamas, Islamic State and Islamic Jihad. That is not to deny the right of the Palestinians to self-determination. Their lives are blighted by Islamic extremism, which doesn't care about their suffering. All that matters is Hamas. Anti-Semitic crusades, irrespective of how much hurt it causes. We must stand up for what is right, just as we did in 1939. Then we stood alone against the Nazi tyrants until the US joined us two years later. Now America and most of the Western world are talking the same language. We have to act in unison and rid the world of these appalling extremists once and for all. Thank you, Planet Normal, for being a beacon of sanity for those of us who hold on to hope that things have not irretrievably changed in our country. Michael. 
Dr. Charlie says, Dear Alison and Liam, I've really enjoyed visiting Planet Normal since discovering you in the early days of COVID, and I usually spend the programme shouting yes at my radio. I was therefore really surprised and distressed by your remarks about the events in Israel and Gaza. Obviously, no one condones the atrocities which occurred. However, surely any reasonable observer, let alone an independent-minded journalist, should ask the question, why? Where does this evil and unbridled anger come from? Is there a cause or has it just happened out of nothing? Multiple references will tell you and your listeners that the origin lies in 1948, the Great Catastrophe, when the modern state of Israel was created and Palestinians were driven out of their ancestral homes with similar violence from the very villages that were attacked so disastrously by their grandchildren on October the 7th. Many of the survivors and their descendants have been corralled into the narrow Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated parts of the world ever since. The current siege is not a new phenomenon, says Dr. Charlie. It's simply a more severe version of the siege that Israel has imposed on Gaza since 2007, leading to over half the population living below the poverty line. Gaza is, in effect, an open-air prison. My daughter lived and worked in Gaza four years ago as a nurse for a humanitarian organisation. There was an essentially peaceful demonstration of unarmed civilians walking towards the fence. They were fired on by Israeli troops. 400 civilians were killed. A particular tactic was to shoot at the knees of the young men, knowing that they couldn't get out of Gaza for treatment or prosthetics, that this rendered them cripples. The men who attacked Israel so violently on October the 7th are their brothers and friends. There isn't room to cover any more of the reams of evidence here, but people on Planet Normal should know this was not a, quote, unprovoked attack. Liam managed to mention a hint of a wider story, but I'm afraid Alison's report was anything but balanced. Many of us who want to hear the Palestinian story told are small kitsy conservatives and not lefty numpties. Your tone of voice in talking about the impending attacks on Gaza was shocking. Are the hundreds of children killed, buried under rubble and screaming in unrelieved pain in collapsed hospitals, the terrorists of whom you spoke? The Bible also says, love your neighbour as yourself. If my daughter was there now, she would have been killed by Israeli bombing, like many of her friends and colleagues have been. Of all sources, I would expect Planet Normal to balance their coverage by stating more clearly that this is the story of the great Barrington Declaration, the story of black South Africans, of the IRA, and despite President Zelensky's equally blinkered statements, it is in fact the story of Ukraine. Amazingly and very sadly, it's also the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Sadly, I fear that you won't have the sense of justice to read this email on air, and I will no longer be able to visit Planet Normal, my refuge of sense and balance. I shall miss it. Well, let me tell you, Dr. Charlie, that I'm only reading out this email because Alison asked me to. Anyway, as we can see, feelings running high on both sides and uh, very much according to personal contacts we have, Charlie with his daughter in Gaza and me with my beloved Jewish friends. This is from Penny. Dear Alison and Liam, you have been a beacon for me for the whole of the awful time that began in spring 2020. Much gratitude to you both for courage, clarity and determination. Many of your interviews have been detailed and moving and I have learned a lot, including the power and gifts of our common humanity, which your podcast seems to bring to the fore on a frequent basis. During the awfulness of lockdowns, I came across the headmaster, Mike Fairclough, on a podcast he did with Tess Laurie of the World Council for Health. At that time, it was summer. He was lighthearted yet somber and spoke movingly about the harms being suffered by children and his opposition to lockdown. 
I was overwhelmed to find out that someone in the captured education system was speaking so confidently about what he knew was right in the face of the great culpable silence that seemed to have hold of all the institutions. I am truly sorry to hear that Mike Fairclough has been got by his employer in this way. Oh, you're free to speak and we're free to continue to investigate. I gather he was signed off work for some time before resigning. I can only imagine the stress he's been under and I wish Mike well. As you said, it's terrible that such a spirit should have been so crushed. Thank you again for what you are doing. I wonder if you have any idea how valuable your voices are. Very best wishes, Penny. That's a very sweet email, Penny. And I know that Mike has had fantastic feedback from appearing on Planet Normal. And he does have this crowdfunder. If you Google Mike Fairclough, then you can donate to his forthcoming tribunal. And so that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn. And you know what? I'm going to give the mug to Charlie. (laughs) Why not? Charlie, that's very big of you when he's accusing your co-pilot of being all sorts of bad things. Anyway. Because on Planet Normal, we welcome all views, don't we? So, Charlie, not only did we read out your email, we're giving you a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. So, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading of the email, mug winner. Give us your home address and we will send that mug to you. Just before we go, Ben, the Israeli soldier, did ask me to direct you to a wonderful project called Israel-Is. Israel is, and that'll give you an insight into some normal Israeli lives, not the extremists you find on both sides. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of lovely ones and they warm the cockles of the co-pilots and mine hearts. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.